Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to see everybody here. Glad to have y'all here with us. Yeah, we another exciting morning. We, um, yeah. Uh, for the elders in the room, we might need to think about getting a spot for Jesus on the payroll. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's true. That's a, but uh, yeah. McGinnis is glad y'all could join us. Jerry's got a spot for you right up front. He's feeling a little lonely. He mentioned that to me earlier. He said it really with his eyes, not so much his words. But <laughs> anyway, well, it is good to have everybody here with us this morning. Um, we are continuing with our series, Exploring Our Strange Bible. Last time, we, uh, we talked a little bit about some uh, strange stuff in the Old Testament that you might not have been familiar with. Today, we're going to talk about basically some of the same kinds of things. We're going to move it into the New Testament. Before we start off, though, let me open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, dig right into all this. You bow with me. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for another beautiful day. Thank you for another opportunity for us to uh, gather with our brothers and sisters to be encouraged as needed, to be challenged as needed. God, we pray that you will bless our time together, maybe grow together. May you fill us with your spirit. May you continue to show us the good works that you have prepared us for. May we look and also see our brothers and sisters striving alongside us, doing these good works as we continue to grow more and more like your son. Father, pray that uh, our lesson today will, uh, will challenge and uh, convict as needed. And again, Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. So last week, just a quick review of last week for those of you who either have slept since last week or were not here last week. Last week we talked about how the creation of the Garden of Eden has all these little hints in it here and there that the Garden of Eden is supposed to be viewed kind of like a cosmic temple where God sort of dwells there and when it says he rests... He gets down to the business of ruling. And that humans created in the image of God, the reason why God, required, God commanded the Israelites not to make idols is because when Genesis says humans are created in the image of God, that word image elsewhere in the Old Testament can mean idol. It can mean a, a representative depiction. Humans are God's own created image. There's nothing in creation that can adequately depict God. And God has already created his own image in humans. So we spent a lot of time kind of digging into that stuff last week. We're going to dig into something, some similar things last time. So quick review questions kind of get us thinking. And I just mentioned some of this stuff, so no trick questions here. If the answer seems simple, go ahead and shout it out if you, uh, if you need to. 
and we'll, we'll roll right along. So in the ancient world, okay, think about ancient times, right? In the ancient world, who lives in temples? Gods and goddesses, deities. Yeah, that's all right. All right, yeah, very good. Okay, so besides living, besides just living in those temples, what else did ancient people think gods and goddesses did in temples? Rule. Rule. That's right. That's right. They ruled. In another sense, we could say rest. Remember Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through the first part of verse 4, when it says that God rests. God rests. It doesn't mean, right, that God kicks up, pulls out his hammock, enjoys the, the, the breezy 75-degree weather right, that we had yesterday. God doesn't do that. He settles in to do his work. He settles down to rule from his temple with, alongside his own images. That's us. All right, so let's connect some ideas from last week a little more carefully to what we're going to do this week. Question. How did Moses first encounter God? I heard a couple of answers. Burning bush? Okay, great. The air conditioner is on. So if you've got an answer... Say it nice and loud. A show of hands if you think burning bush is the correct answer. Burning bush is the correct answer. Yes. Okay, yes. <laughs> you feeling good about that? It, clap for yourself if you've got that right. <laughs> okay. The burning bush. Okay. Of course, he was, God was probably with him when he was in the basket in the river that had crocodiles in it. So very true point. Okay. Yeah, very true point. Uh, Sean scores one point on a technicality. <laughs> No. What's that? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't hear. I didn't hear. Yeah. No, but I think that, that's fair. You could say, right, you could look back at Moses' life. Clearly, there was God's, handy, God's work uh, visible or, or maybe implied at least. But when Moses first realizes, wow, this is, this is something different, burning bush would definitely be it. And so um, I, don't, I don't normally like to do this. But I, I do apologize. I am going to mention my podcast here just for a second. There is uh, there's an Old Testament professor from my alma mater named Kevin Youngblood. And in that conversation that he and I had, basically I asked him the question, how does the Old Testament anticipate Jesus? Help us kind of see the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills so much more than just you know these you know, however many prophecies. Jesus fulfills and kind of brings home a whole lot more in the Old Testament than we might think. So I asked him that question, how does the Old Testament anticipate Jesus? Here's what he mentioned in the course of our conversation. He points out that God does not need anything from us. God does not need anything from us. If you compare the Israelites' view of God with how Many other ancient peoples viewed their gods. Other peoples thought that their gods and goddesses needed their sacrifices. They thought their gods and goddesses needed their sacrifices. God, however, Yahweh, commands sacrifices. Is he hungry? 
Do you think God is hungry? Mm. Hungry for food? Okay, all right. <laughs> Justin was trying to throw me in for a loop there. He's not hungry for food. But God commands sacrifices because sharing a meal, sharing a meal was a common and powerful way in that culture to express relationship, fellowship, togetherness. Guys, it's just like after church, right? Who are we going to go eat with? Who are we going to eat with? How special do you feel when someone invites you to lunch? Or maybe it's on you to do the inviting to lunch, right? It's about fellowship and friendship. And you know those groups. Oh, you no. Know, well, we, we can't go to eat to them in the church that we worked with uh, in Kentucky. I knew there were groups that if we, if we asked them to go to lunch, they would be polite enough to say, yes, you can come with us, but we would be at the far end of the table because that group of three or four families was always going to go do their own thing. But if they had invited us, hey, come with us, that would be, that'd be a pretty neat thing. So God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need the sacrifices. Okay, keep that in mind. God doesn't need anything. Let me ask this. What happens to the bush as Moses watches it? It's on fire, but it's not burned up, right? Similar to how God does not need the food of sacrifice because he's a social eater. <laughs> okay, Think about God as a social eater. He doesn't need that. God in the burning bush, he doesn't need the bush for fuel either in a similar way. Kevin, yes, sir. Yeah, Hosea, you may be going here, but Hosea 6, 6, God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus yeah. says the same, but go mm. learn in Matthew 9, 13, go learn what this means. I desire not mercy, but sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Right. Mike is correct to bring up this passage from Hosea, which is quoted in the Gospels as well. God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The sacrifices there are just a, a way for the people to tie themselves to God, but God himself doesn't physically need anything from the sacrifice like you and I physically need to eat. All right, so Moses is there. What's that, Sean? Yeah, yeah. It's exactly right. It's a desire. The desire there, it's not a need, right? As if God needed. It's a want. I don't need... Like, I don't need... Give me just a sec, Rich. I don't, I don't need Pete to help me change the flat tire on Linnea's car this weekend. I didn't need him to do that. But I wanted him out there with me. I wanted him to be there with me in a way that it wasn't going to hurt him right. We had to get the jack just set up right. Don't go under the car. Okay, you can look, but don't go all the way under and stuff like that. I didn't need him there, right? I probably could have done it faster without him, yeah? Okay. But I wanted him there with me. Rich, yeah. Well, I think that's God. I said what I was getting ready to say. God doesn't need us, but he knows us well enough to know we need to need him. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. All right, question. Going back to Moses and the burning bush, what did God say 
about the ground where Moses was standing. It's holy ground, hallowed ground. All right, what did God ask Moses to do? Remove his sandals, yeah, take off his shoes. Why did God ask Moses to remove his sandals? It's holy ground, but yeah, why, why does that matter? I'm sorry, what? Is it the physical connection of your physical body touching his? The comment was, is it the physical connection of Moses's uh, body physically touching the ground where God is? I honestly don't know, but that is an interesting point that I hadn't considered before. It could make sense. Joe, was that a, well, Joe, did you have a comment or were you? She, she channeled me. Oh, okay. That's a, that's a scary place to be sometimes, but... <laughs> But that, uh, that is an interesting point. Yeah, that would be worth digging into. Jamie, yes, sir? Uh, possibly remove or think that that just didn't even God. Interesting. Kind of laying some things aside. Right. Yeah. That's right. Sign of respect in some cultures, definitely. That God is the only protection he needs. Mm. Interesting. God's the only protection he needs. Yeah, these are all good, good, good thoughts here. I'll mention this, too. This comes from, uh, from a, a trio of scholars who have put together a really good uh, a commentary on the Old Testament. They mentioned that it was, it was common practice for priests. All right, so remember, think, think a polytheistic world, okay? Lots of, lots of gods and goddesses. It was common practice back then for priests to enter temples barefoot to prevent bringing in dust like just the dirt of the ground, or any kind of other impurities of any sort into the temple. Okay. In the, in the ancient world, the average person was much more sensitive to this notion of sacred space. We kind of have an idea about that, right? You don't have to raise your hand, okay? Because I don't want you to rat it yourself out. You can plead the fifth. But if at ever any point you have felt like while you're in the church building, you need to keep extra watch over what you say, maybe you get this idea of sacred space, right? I'm seeing a couple of people laugh, yeah? You can't say that in the church building. Come on. What are you trying to say? Yeah? How many of you get a little queasy when we start singing unto thee, O Lord, and you say, and you sing that line, Oh my God. I can't say that. I'm in church. Right? Okay. Okay. All right. But anyway, if... Yeah, sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. because I don't talk that way with them. It's funny. They'll start apologizing. <laughs> like, like somehow, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know, yeah. You know, they still do it because sure, it's right, it, but yeah. They, they know there's something different, and it's good. Yeah, yeah, and it's just it's like we kind of get this notion, right, of of sacred space. Yes, sir, Joe. Uh, Grace, Grace Fellowship. We had a, a guy that would preach barefoot. Preach barefoot. Interesting. I'll pass that one by Mark. See what he thinks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
In the ancient world, the average person was much more sensitive to this notion of sacred space, either this temple or the sanctuary, or go to Exodus chapter 19, and then the following chapters, this mountain, right, Mount Sinai. This temple, the sanctuary, this mountain was specially dedicated to God or to the gods and goddesses if you were pagan. And that deity, whether it's, you know, wh whether they believed it was Yahweh or any of these other pagan gods and goddesses, that deity dwelled, they lived, they rested, they ruled from that space. And so in order not to anger God or the gods, you don't just roll up into that space disrespectfully or without some kind of offering. Okay, again, just one kind of quick example of this sort of thing. I did not know my, uh, my grandparents. Three of my four grandparents had passed away before I was born. Happens when you're a surprise baby. <laughs> and the last one I only got to meet maybe three or four times in the span of about 10, 11, 12 years before she passed away. But there was, a, my, my mom had a great aunt who lived fairly close to us, and I got to see her a lot more often. The way her house looked and smelled and the kind of furniture she had and the knickknacks and things, and like the high back wood trimmed chairs with the real puffy, you know, uh, stuffing that had all the buttons in it and everything. I'm trying to describe a particular look of furniture. I would not dare go into that space with dirty shoes, with dirty clothes. My mom would not dare <laughs> let me go in there. I didn't go in there just touching all the stuff, okay? I'm trying to think of all the things that my boys do to our house. <laughs> I didn't roll up into Aunt Catherine's house just any way I wanted to, there was a respect to it in a much grander and more important way. People treated temples in the ancient times. Now, can anybody think of a time when Jesus, it's a pretty straightforward answer here, can anybody think of a time when Jesus disapproved of disrespectful attitudes towards God's temple? <laughs> Turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. What would Jesus do? Yeah. <laughs> I, I saw somebody the other day pray that, God, may we flip over the same tables that Jesus would have flipped over. <laughs> so, I can roll with that. Mark chapter 11, verse 15. Mark chapter 11, verse 15. I'll read this for us because I've, uh, I've, for the sake of my audio recording that I've got up here, Mark chapter 11, verse 15. 15, and we'll read just these, uh, this, these few passages. Your, your Bible might have a heading or something like, Jesus cleanses the temple. Uh, yeah. you, you could also say, maybe the NIV says something like, Jesus cleans house or something. Maybe that might be the New Living Translation. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. And began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And as he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? 
And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Okay. Jesus cleared out the money changers and the tables. And, and, and basically, Jesus is kind of preparing the way. What you have been disrespecting this whole time, I'm here to show you how you really ought to treat God's temple. Now clearly, right, Jesus was not anti-temple because he went there all the time. It was important to Jesus and his ministry. He attends festivals that requires sacrifices at the temple. And even, even Jesus willingly pays the temple tax. If you want to check out Matthew chapter 17, just as a note, verse 24 and following. Yes, sir. Yeah, last week you kept pleading you didn't have enough time. So. <laughs> In, in the temple there? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is that true? I think that there is good reason to suspect that's true. The text doesn't give us a lot of detail about that kind of thing. Obviously, there was need for people to buy animals for sacrifices, and it was prohibitively difficult for people, say, who were traveling from maybe Egypt or northern parts of Syria or even farther. Why carry your, your lamb or your birds with you all these many you know, hundreds of miles sometimes? You could buy the things there. It was a convenience factor. But undoubtedly, there was some probably corruption, some you know, scheming, things like that. I just, I wouldn't, if everything was, was kosher, I don't, <laughs> sorry, that's the low-hanging fruit. If everything was kosher there, I don't think Jesus would have had as much problem with it. Rich, yes, sir. My father-in-law, my first father-in-law, told me once that uh, that was why the Jews had to make so much money is so they could afford kosher food. <laughs> is because that what he said? I, I mean, yeah, sure. You know, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, clear, well, so Jesus, he even pays his temple tax. Let me ask this question. We'll back up just a little bit in, in the Bible. Who wanted to build a temple for God. Was it God's choice or somebody else? David. It was David. Who ended up building the, temp the first temple? Solomon. Solomon, right? But it was David who wanted to. David wanted to build a temple for God. But here's, here's kind of God's perspective in a nutshell on temples. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 66, very last verse, or very last chapter in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66. This was something that we looked at last week, but it's a good, it's a good idea. It, it's useful to bring it up again here. Isaiah 66, just the first really one and a half verses. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2a. Yeah, your, um, your Bible might have a heading that says something like, The worship that God demands, or, or the humble and contrite in spirit. Thus says the Lord God, 
And he starts describing the parts of creation, right? Heaven and earth, like we talked about last week. Thus says the Lord God, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? And what is my resting place? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things are mine, says the Lord. Does God need a fancy house in Jerusalem? No. No. God doesn't need anything, much less a fancy house. Exactly. The comment was certainly not one that man can make since God well, has created the entire cosmos as his temple and dwelling place. And in Stephen's defense speech in Acts chapter 7, Stephen reminds these guys, the Most High does not dwell in temples made by human hands. And that is one of the things that really kind of sets them off. All right. Still, when we come to the temple there in Jerusalem, thinking Jesus' time, Jesus affirmed the temple's purpose, and he attended it respectfully. But let me ask this question. What else did Jesus think about the temple? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. As, we're, as you're turning there, just a quick recap of where we've been. God created the cosmos to be his temple. He created humans to be his images, right? To be his, if you want to say the word idol, that might feel weird, but that's along the idea, right? An idol was a commissioned representative of that particular God or goddess. God has created his own images, humans, to do that. We royally messed it up. So I'm basically a fat Buddha doll. <laughs> Um, I'm not going to repeat that one for the recording. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Sean, uh, you can ask Sean what he said later. It was funny. But as we move along through here, God's space begins to shrink a little bit so he can continue to dwell with his people. It's the cosmos, and then he, a tabernacle, and then a temple that stays put there, and then that's how the Israelites operate off and on for roughly a thousand-ish years. So we get to Jesus' time, and then Jesus has this conversation in Matthew chapter 12 that's incredibly significant. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and eat them. That was considered work, according to this peculiar interpretation of what work was that the Pharisees had. So that's why in verse 2, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Jesus says, well, have you not read? <laughs> this is great. So like, if one of y'all came up to me and said, Kevin, yeah, I, there's this issue here, and, and we started arguing, and if, you, and if you said to me, Kevin, well, haven't you read in the Gospel of Matthew? I've got a PhD in New Testament. Yeah, I've read it in English and Greek. That would cut hard if you brought that to me, Jesus is doing the same kind of thing with these guys. Teacher of the law, haven't you read this? Haven't you read this? 
Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Verse 3. And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or haven't you read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath because they have to do work on the Sabbath to get the things ready for the temple? But they're guiltless. Verse 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. My question is, what is that something greater? Jesus. Can we all say that together? Jesus. Jesus is the something greater than the temple. How? How is Jesus greater than the temple? What does that mean? That's why you're my favorite Bible student. <laughs> I was going to say this. Okay. You, you were channeling, you were channeling Linnea just like Joe. Yeah. Okay. The temple, Linnea said, the temple is the space where God came down and dwelled, but Jesus, were, and then people would come to the temple, but, in, on the other, but basically flip that. Jesus is the space with God incarnate going out instead to meet the people, to be with the people. It's like the walking physical embodiment of the temple itself is now bringing that life out into the world. Instead of, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Have you been peeking at my notes? <laughs> yeah, we're exactly. We're going to get there. Instead of a building of stone, wood, and precious metals, Jesus is God in the flesh, the living, breathing God incarnate who brings the very spirit and presence of God out into the world. Now, the Old Testament often talks about the spirit of God being poured out. It uses water imagery. I'm going to read these for you quickly because I don't want us to run out of time. But Joel chapter 2 Verses 28 and 29, if you're familiar with Acts chapter 2, you'll recognize these passages too. Joel chapter 2, he's talking about the Holy Spirit and he's using water imagery. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. Notice how he begins with, I will pour out my Spirit, and he ends with, I will pour out my Spirit. Brothers and sisters, when you see the Old Testament do something like this, it is important. Pay attention to that kind of bookending there. He says that. You can also look at uh, some other passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel. There is another beautiful connection with God's spirit and water and the temple in Ezekiel 47. I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and turn there because this is a passage that we really need to dig into. Ezekiel 47. We've had some good stuff from Ezekiel today. Uh, Mark, that uh, passage that Jerry read for us is from Ezekiel 37. What I'm going to read for us now is from Ezekiel 47. 
Ezekiel sees a vision. Also, um, just by way of reminder, why is the Dead Sea called the Dead Sea? Doesn't flow anywhere. Nothing lives in it, right? It's why. Why can't anything live in the Dead Sea? Too much salt in the water. Yeah. All right. So the Dead Sea is useful for salt, but it's dead. All right. Keep that in mind. Ezekiel 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was flowing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate, and led me around the outside of the gate that faces toward the east. Basically, he's kind of doing like a 360 around. The water was trickling out on the south side, going on eastward, with a measuring line in his hand. This is a vision Ezekiel's having here. The man measured a thousand cubits. Then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was waist deep. Verse 5. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Human, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river. Again, this is a river flowing from the temple out down towards the south I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other and he said to me this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah and enters the sea he's talking about the Dead Sea there and when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the dead sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river, grow, river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Eneglaim. It will be a place for the spreading of the nets. Its fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea. By way of comparison, he's talking about the Mediterranean Sea here. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh, for they are to be left for salt. There's something useful there. Verse 12, and then we'll finish this section. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, their leaves for healing. This water issuing forth from the temple brings new life. Did you get hints of creation there? The fish swarming in the sea. In John chapter 7, verse 37. In John chapter 7, verse 37. Jesus is there. And instead of water flowing, life-giving water flowing from the temple... Listen to where Jesus says life-giving water is going to start flowing from. On the last day of the feast, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me 
And let anyone who believes in me drink, as the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now I said this about the Spirit, which believers in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given. Instead of the temple in Ezekiel's vision, where this life-giving water flows out. And it doesn't just make bad people good, right? Like what Mark was saying earlier, and I've said this too. The gospel isn't about making bad people good. It's about making dead people live. This life-giving water isn't just flowing from the temple, what Jesus says in John chapter 7, and earlier in John chapter 4. This life-giving water is going to pour out from everyone who believes, everyone who has expressed their allegiance, their fidelity, their faithfulness to Jesus. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapters 3 and 6, describes believers as a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20 Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. Each of these three passages refer to either your individual body as a temple of the Holy Spirit or the group of believers gathered together as a type of temple for the living God. The bottom line is this. What we saw in creation, we'll wrap up with this. What we saw in creation, where God built this incredible cosmic temple and created people to be in there with him, you can track this line of thinking all the way through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, where the way Jesus wanted us to see it was that that space where God is is no longer separated. This is sacred holy space over here in the middle of Jerusalem and you are over here by yourself and you have to... You can't just walk up into that whenever you want to. That has been flipped. Jesus has reversed that. Jesus has come to make you and me individually and together temples of his Holy Spirit pouring forth this life-giving water like what we saw in Ezekiel 47 and like what Jesus talks about all throughout the Gospel of John. In Christ, you're a living, breathing temple of the living God. But the same life-giving, gospel-doing mission of Jesus 
And I think, unfortunately, a lot of uh, preach, well-meaning preachers or teachers have kind of sold us short. The Christian life is so much more than do these things, don't do these things. The vision that I've been trying to cast last week and this week is something so much bigger, something so much grander, something so much more cosmically significant than just don't do these things, do these things. God's very spirit longs to dwell in you because that is precisely why you were created anew in Christ. Your life as a Christian is so much more than just don't do these things, do these things. God has created you to be a temple of his Holy Spirit. Guys, we're out of time. Appreciate y'all. Thank you very much.